All right, welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us today. We are talking about cystic fibrosis, transplant, and knowing your body. So we all know with chronic illness that being disconnected from your body will affect you and being able to really know your body and what does that even mean? How does that play out? Especially in these situations with something like cystic fibrosis, how that might make a difference for you. So I'm going to go ahead and have our guests introduce themselves. We're joined by Ella and Jamie. Ella, would you like to, or actually I'll have Jamie, I'll have you introduce yourself first. Go ahead. <laughs> no problem. Uh, my name is Jamie. I am 33 years old. I live with cystic fibrosis and I'm also a double lung transplant recipient. Um, I had my transplant in July of 2017 and I currently live in Newfoundland, Canada. Yay. And Ella? I am 28 years old, just turned 28 earlier this month. Um, I was diagnosed with CF at 18 months old, and I currently live in Richmond, Virginia, lived here my whole life, um, and I work in a microbiology lab. That's my background in biology, and I enjoy spending time outside in the yard, um, going to the beach. Uh, traveling when I can, hopefully can again soon. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that'll be a lot better. And then how were, because you both have very different backgrounds. So what was like your story, like your brief kind of story with cystic fibrosis, how you were diagnosed and what that kind of looked like? So I, yeah, so I was diagnosed at 18 months old and my, you know, I, a lot of People with CF are born with meconium ileus, which is that blockage in the intestine. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I didn't have that, but um, so they didn't know right away that I that I had CF. Nobody in my family, in my, even in my extended family, has had any history of CF. So nobody suspected it. Um, I was just a very sickly infant. My mom would say that, you know, I had a really hard time gaining weight. I was always sick with mm -hmm. sinus infections. Uh, and then I caught pneumonia when I was 18 months old. And so my, uh, the pediatrician was like, well, I think there's definitely something else wrong with her. So that's when they wow. then tested me for CF. And, you know, my mom had, my parents had never heard of CF before. Um, you know, they were like, well, I don't know what that is, but she definitely doesn't have it. <laughs> oh, wow. And it turns out I do. Yeah. All right. So okay. Jamie, what about your story? So I was diagnosed at three months of age. Um, again, like Ella, I have no CF, uh, known CF in my family. Um, the closest thing they can figure out is I had a great uncle who passed away uh, at age two of respiratory illness. So mm. they, they, they believe that's where it may have come from. But I mean, it's, it's quite a mystery. Um, yeah, so I was diagnosed at three months of age and I had, you know, a fairly, I guess, average when it comes to CF life, I was in the hospital probably once a year in my childhood. Um, and then obviously as I got older, it progressed. Yeah. Wow. And why do you guys think, so since we're saying that, right? Like, so why do you think CF, lung transplants, things like that, there isn't more information about it? Jamie, you want to take a Okay, break? sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think, I didn't really think about actually when I seen that question that you sent over as the 
the first thing we were going to discuss, um, it actually brought me back because I actually didn't think about that until I actually had a transplant mm. and how up until I had a transplant and like maybe the couple of years before transplants weren't something that I heard of quite often. Mm -hmm. I wasn't exposed to people who had transplants very much. I mean, now most of my Facebook and Instagram are people, <laughs> friends of mine who have had transplants. So, yeah. um, I, but I also feel that lung transplants specifically aren't well known because there aren't very many diseases out there that affect the lungs like cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. So it's a smaller um, population that's affected when it comes to needing lungs, whereas kidneys and like livers and things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many diseases that affect those organs. Right. I find like through my exposure with transplant, it's mainly cystic fibrosis, COPD, uh, pulmonary fibrosis disease, like things like that, that require transplant. So it's not something that's going to be as known to the public as let's say a kidney or liver transplant would. Right. And I also feel um, to be quite honest that CF has progressed so much in the past 30 years. Um, you know, like my mom and I discussed this this morning, how like when I was a child, I mean, cystic fibrosis was talked about so much because it was a, such a oh. deadly yep, there kid's go. disease. And now that uh, sufferers are living into their adulthood and, you know, we're not just surviving, we're thriving, you know, because of uh, advances in medicine and different things like that. I just think that it's not as, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is like the urgency because, I mean, people are living longer isn't there as much as it was maybe 30 years ago. That's an interesting, I didn't even think about that. That's an interesting point. The funny yeah. thing about like the whole kidney and liver thing to me is like when you were saying that, I'm like, yeah, because the only thing you see represented on TV shows and they're poorly represented is like, this person needs an emergency kidney transplant and they get it in like five minutes. I'm like, that is so not how that works. <laughs> and it's always kidney and liver and they get it in like 10 minutes. Or like the next day, I'm like, yeah, if only that's how that worked. It's like, you know, like that, that is such a like a really good point that you brought up because. The medical shows actually drive me bonkers and how unrealistically portrayed. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. um, you know, especially like you said, kidneys and livers. I mean, I think kidneys, you can, you may know this more than me, Nika, but I think kidneys are, is the longest list that you have to wait for. Yep. Whereas, I mean, lung transplants, my best friend waited five hours. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, so yeah. Some, some lists are very, very short. Yeah. And I was, I have experienced, and we might talk about this at later points, but um, yeah, I went through the transplant process. I didn't get the transplant, but I went through the workup to getting a transplant last year at Duke University. And, you know, their list, their wait time on their list is, I think, an average of two months at the most. Wow. Um, and many, you know, people that I was in the rehab classes with there and like learning all about the transplant, they got their transplants when we were still going through it. Um, and so I actually didn't get listed because of this I want I was waiting to try this new medication a very new one that's treating the underlying the cause of CF um, and I didn't want to get listed because I wanted to wait to see if I could try that before I got lungs um, be just because the wait was is so, is so short that's amazing well and I think yeah. so because that's true for a lot of lists except for kidney and the only thing I can come up with other than a everything ends in kidney failure so you have a much bigger pool I mean 
diabetes, like everything, like every major thing ends in kidney failure. So you have a higher chance, like hypertension, whatever, you have a higher chance of a larger population with kidney failure. But then also, because we do have dialysis, we're going to live and be able to wait. So then the the wait gets exponentially longer, because dialysis keeps us alive, versus every other organ, you don't really have that. So it's, you get the transplant or you die. And that's basically it. You don't have a whole lot of options to keep you sustained. I mean, there are people on dialysis for shockingly like 10, 15 plus years. So that that's a really good point. And then Ella, like, so you were talking about, we can, all, we can go into it, like that whole, what was that drug that you did? Like, what's all of your story with that? Yeah, so um, this has been a drug in the making uh, with a, com- a pharmaceutical company called Vertex. And it's, the medication is called Trikafta. And so this... Um, it treats about 90% of people with CF based on the, the, muta- the specific mutations that someone has. Um, and so it's something that's, you know, been in clinical trials over the past few years, and I've been really waiting to, to be able to access it. Um, but last year, uh, last winter, I became really sick with uh, an infection, lung infection, and I was on IV antibiotics for like five weeks and not having any relief in symptoms. You know, really over time, the more I've used antibiotics, the less effective they have become right. including these flare-ups. And so I, uh, my lung function was down to like 18%. So I was on supplemental oxygen all the time. I was just struggling to breathe even in the shower. Like I couldn't... Uh, you know, I, I had to use oxygen in the shower, like putting my hands above my head to wash my hair was just very exhausting. So oh, wow. needless to say, then I was referred to um, get a transplant. And so um, like I went d- down to Duke and then I was informed that soon afterward, I would have access to this new drug called Trikafta. Mm-hmm. And so in September of last year, um, I started it and it's really, really stabilized my health more than I could have hoped. Like, I mean, honestly, it's redu- reduced the amount of antibiotics that I need. I haven't used any antibiotics intravenously since I started like nine wow. months ago. So yeah, it's, it's really helped stabilize me. I still have very low lung function, about like 28%, but, and I still use oxygen when I'm exercising, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's really helped. And I, you know, hope that it can keep me going for a couple more years, you know, before I have to cross that transplant hurdle again. That's so amazing. So that kind of leads me into like my next thought here for each of you, because Ella, you don't have a transplant, Jamie, you do. So A, can you guys explain to me like how they test lung function and what that's called and then what your respective level of lung function, I don't even know how to properly say that, but whatever that is. Yeah, I mean, they, oh. Oh, sorry. they they test uh, through a, a te- like it's a breathing test called the pulmonary function test. Um, and it's a measure of FEV1, which is the forced expiratory volume in the first one second of exhaling. Um, and this is it gives a percentage or a volume in liters. Um, and so this is what measures whether you have any kind of damage, uh, you know, obstructive, <clears throat> obstructive damage in your airways. Uh, and so I've had for the really the past 10 years, roughly, um, I've had lung function in the 30% range or below. 
Um, so I've really been able to hold on for quite some time, a long time um, with very little volume, um, which is not very typical. I think that is quite atypical. Um, you know, usually when you have some such severe disease, it, it declines you know, function does decline pretty rapidly. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know what I can attribute it to other than really trying to keep up with my airway clearance every day. Um, you know, trying to do the best that I can to manage my health, keep up, you know, keep fit as much as possible. Um, and then, you know, taking the needed medications, um, you know, as, as they become available. And so I've, you know, like last year I dipped to 18%, but that's, that's the lowest I've been. And now I'm back up to 28. So, I mean, you know, to give you an idea of what I can do physically, you know, I've now with my fitness routine, I've been able to build up some, some more endurance, but, you know, I still um, use oxygen when I'm getting on the elliptical, you know, when I'm just, just pedaling away, you know, I use about three liters per minute of oxygen during these alpha. So um, I'm still definitely limited. You know, I, I hope for the day that I can go snowboarding or skiing or any kind of rock climbing, you know, some of these like really strenuous um, physical activities that I haven't been able to do in such a long time. Um, you know, and with transplant, I hope to be able to do all that again. But, you know, for now, I'm just making the most of the volume that I have. Totally. Wow. it's amazing. Yeah. And then Jamie, what about you? So Ella brought up a really good point in that uh, usually when lung function starts to decline, it really goes on quite a rapid pace to mm -hmm. go on downhill. And that's basically what happened with me. I uh, hovered in the between 40s and 50s for a very long time. I think it was maybe five, six years. And then I ended up contracting a bacteria called non-tuberculant microbacterium, which basically sent my lung function to a downward spiral. Mm. Um and I got down to 13% before I got my transplant. So it was quite, so I kind of, it's funny when Ella said 18% it brought back so many memories and I, I, I got to give kudos to you, man, for being able to survive 18% because it was so difficult for me. Um, so yeah, there's a magic number in the CF community uh, that the medical team looks at. So when your lung function gets around 30%, that's when you start to be evaluated for lung transplant. Oh, wow. Okay. Because it's really around the 30% mark that things can progress very, very quickly. So um, in my case, um, I was very thankful, very, very thankful to my team that even when I was in the 40s, even though I got this uh, microbacterium infection, they consulted transplant right away. And I was very, very lucky to be transplanted when I did because um, I remember just days before my transplant, uh, the doctors came in and felt that I had very little time left to live. But how much function did you have at that time? Right before my transplant, I got yeah. down to 13%. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was on oxygen. I was in the hospital for three, uh, well, total time spent in hospital before my transplant was 550 days in the two I years leading up. Oh, the two oh, years. Wow. That's, still a lot. that's like a year and a half out of the two years. That's a lot. It is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And even even when I wasn't in hospital, I still wasn't functional. You know what I mean? So the transplant for me came at like the perfect, perfect time. Like I was very lucky to have to have survived. I think that's something that, you know, a lot of <clears throat> obviously if you decline very, very rapidly, you know, you don't have that period of time where you're weighing, you know, 
well, how much is my quality of life really affected by me? Right. You know, how much can I still do versus the time that it requires for me to stay alive, exactly. you know, just to do all the treatments? And I think, you know, for me, I've kind of for, for a long period of time have been in this limbo of where, you know, I there are periods of time where I am worse, you know, in the past couple of years. Where I'm like, I, I can't sustain this. You know, I can't do this for much longer. Yeah, I'm not like on my deathbed, like at 13 percent. But, you know, I it's getting harder. You know, I, I can't go for more than, you know, a couple of hours without doing treatments. And I can't yeah. breathe enough to do what I want to do in my life to find like to be fulfilled in what I'm doing in my life. Yeah. And so that's something that I've struggled with, uh, you know, a number of times at different periods, of, you know, over the past couple of years with, you know, well, when is the right time? And right now, obviously I'm in a good place and I, you know, I think I can stay stable, but um, yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult when you are kind of, you know, when you're not faced with, yes, you need it right now or you are going to die, but it's like, well, well, when is, when is the, pros of transplant outweigh the, the the potential for you know the fact that the reality with lung transplant and you know you can talk about this more Jimmy but you know the, the survival I think for six six years after five years after transplant is 60 percent or at least that's what it was as an average in, in the United States um recently so you know it, there's definitely benefit and but there's yeah, also for me, that was such a mental struggle before my transplant was like, okay, knowing when, because like you said, there's such a, 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 a mind thing that happens when you have CF because you don't want to get your transplant too fast mm. because then you enter into that stage of you have a transplant and you know that there's a shelf life and you know that there's this pressure to maintain your lungs and that things can go wrong even with new lungs. But then at the same time, you're like, well, I'm not really living my best life with the lungs that I have. So it's for me, like I, I relate to you so much, Ellen, that you it's it's such a mind struggle when you're trying to balance out. OK, is this the right time? And then I often found, too, Ella, I don't know if you can relate, but like you have better days than and bad days. Some days you feel like you can put it off for years and then other days you want it tomorrow. You know, so like for me, it was such a an inward turmoil of trying to figure out like but luckily like for me I didn't really have a choice it was like you either get a transplant or you're gonna die mm. you know right. so I, I didn't have that that slow decline which you know kudos to you for being able to to to, to suffer it out so that makes me wonder like because yes I know kidneys but I don't know anything else so what because so like with kidneys you don't feel kidney failure. So it's a double-edged sword. So you're lucky in that you're like, ah, eh, life is fine. Like, which also makes it really mentally difficult when the time comes, if you haven't been feeling it. Cause you're like, wait, what? I feel fine. I don't understand. Wow. Um, there's a mental game there because until it's too late, like down to like super little function, people hallucinate, throw up, whatever. Until that point, other than being, being tired, you don't feel a whole lot. Um, and so that's why people also have a mental difficulty grappling with the changes in dialysis and transplant because you're like, I don't understand. Right. Yeah. But the lungs are your lungs. Like you gotta breathe. So you feel like what can you guys explain? Like, what does that feel like? Like you're talking 30% and above and then below and that 13, like what do those different stages feel like? And then after that, Jamie, what does it feel like post transplant? So for me, um, like, hovering around that 40, 50, 
I definitely felt limitations, but I, I mean, I had a really good quality of life for, like I said, five, six years. I was working. I was able to do things, you know, fairly normally. I wasn't on any supplemental oxygen. But once I got down around the 30 mark is when I really started noticing, like Ella mentioned, like being in the shower and like raising your hands up or like having to just do like simple things like exercise and going for walks. I really found difficult Um, sleeping. I used to have really bad back pain. I used to only be able to sleep. Oh, we lost him for a second. (laughs) Um, What? You want to start back just a second? It, it cut out and then came back in. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, like I just noticed different things like with sleeping, like I couldn't sleep on my back anymore. I had to mm-hmm. sleep on my side. Um, I started coughing. I started having wheezing. I started having really weird noises coming from my lungs. Mm-hmm. And like with cystic fibrosis, cystic fibrosis produces a lot of mucus. So it just became impossible for me to clear all that stuff out. I could do physio 50 times a day. And it would just keep on coming, keep on coming, keep on coming because my lungs just failed to the point where they weren't able to keep up with the mucus production. Wow. Yeah, exactly. You've both mentioned this and I don't know what it is. So because Ella, you called it something and then you just called it physio. What are you guys referring to? Like certain exercises for your life? Like, what is that? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's forms of airway clearance, okay, basically to remove the mucus from the lungs. Okay. Um, and these entail, uh, inhaled therapies. So actually I have one right here, but this is like a nebulizer, you know, you put it in your mouth and then you hook it up to a compressor and then you basically put medications in it, uh, and then you inhale them. So these medications open the airways, kind of loosen the mucus and then you need to have a way to expel the mucus. So then um, I do different kinds of uh, what's called PEP devices. So positive airway pressure. Um, and this thing's like, I just have them here, but. Um, <laughs> this, here we go. How, how convenient. <laughs> this is, I think it's called the Vibra PEP. And basically it um, oscillates. There, there's a thing in here that makes the airways oscillate so it um then moves the mucus from the airways to loosen it and then i also have a vest which is it's kind of heavy but it's it's a really <laughs> and um you just put it on it's a vest and then it there's two different kinds but one one of the ones i have is like it blows up with air and then the frequency vibrates the chest so it just like wow makes yeah it just like moves your entire body and to loosen the mucus. But that also doesn't, it's not an active form of airway clearance. It's just another way of loosening it. So you really need these, really I haven't been, over the years I've had periods of being more uh, involved with my airway clearance exercises, meaning like sometimes I'll just do the vest and not do these active coughing uh, treatment, you know, exercises that I think are really important. Um, that I think a lot of people don't focus on, at least in the U.S., because we have the vest, um, but like the, these PEP devices and then just what's called um, autogenic drainage. And these are breathing at different lung volumes sure. to move mucus from lower in the bottom airways up to the higher airways where you can then easily cough it out. Wow. How long does that take? <laughs> <laughs> I <do. laughs> So it's, it's pretty time consuming. I mean, now, you know, now with that, I've started trick after this medication, I have been able to think very fortunately, you know, do maybe like one less treatment a day. But before that, 
I'm, I mean, I'm still doing three every day, no questions, um, to remove this mucus. Um, and each one takes for me about, about 45 minutes. Oh, geez. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was basically the same for me. Like before my transplant, it was just basically what I lived to do. I lived basically to do airway clearance because it's so time consuming. Because like Ella said, you have to do the pre-treatment of the nebulizers. You have to give that time to sit in your lungs to do work its magic. Then you have to do, you know, your different forms. And everybody with CF, like through my experience that I've talked to, has a totally different regimen for what works for them. Because you get to play around with like the different techniques that your local team offers you, right? And I was very lucky to have a really, really good physiotherapist. So like everything was on the table. And she basically said, like, whatever works for you, that's what we're going to, like, master. Right. So, like, I, I, I related to so much that you did, uh, Ella. I had a, a vest. I had the autogenic drainage. I did the pet mask. And I even did, like, manual percussion, which they used right. to do, like, old school, which is where you cup your hand and you, like, basically beat the crap out of yourself. Oh, my gosh. And I really didn't even mention that one. But, yeah, my parents, I don't know how I forgot because my parents yeah. used to do that to me all the time. <laughs> yeah. So like all those methods, I mean, like, like Ellis, like it used to take me all day because that's all I would do to, oh to try and stay healthy. So what happens if you don't do these? You get what sick. What happens is you get a, a buildup of the mucus and then that mucus is sitting there, which, which cultivates bacteria. That bacteria leads to major infections, which basically leads to damage in your lungs, which leads to you dying faster. That's it in a nutshell. Yes. <laughs> I don't mean right. I don't mean to be so blunt, but basically, no. you your airway clearance, you're going to die a lot faster than Jeez. if you don't. Yes, and yeah, and it's also just you know, obviously, when you have, when you have more lung function percentage, you know, maybe you don't feel the buildup as quickly, but when you get down to volumes like you know in the thirty percent, if you don't do one treatment, you're going to be feeling it. You feel and you're it. not going to want to skip it because you, feel you won't it. be able to breathe. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, I can't even imagine. That's so crazy to me. And then, so we were talking about like what it feels like as your lung function's declining. So then, Jamie, you were down to like 13. What happened post transplant? So, oh my God, I'm going to try not to get emotional now because it's mm -hmm. been so long since I've talked about transplant. But, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever been on YouTube and watched these videos of people waking up from transplant and getting the, the tube taken out and just mm -hmm. the look on their faces. But like for me, it was just it was such a night and day uh, feeling. And I mean, post transplant, you don't have your full ability to breathe right away. People don't mm -hmm. understand this. It's not like you wake up from surgery and you're like, boom, you're at your max potential because your lungs have just been through even the donor lungs have just been through something very traumatic. They've mm -hmm. been taken out of one body and put in yours. So it takes like. It took me a good six, nine months before I was able to fully feel. But even just right away, I think like, I think my first breathing test was in the forties and I felt like it was in the thousands. <laughs> Cause compared to 13%. <laughs> compared to 13%. I mean, just the ability not to have oxygen, to be able to go to the bathroom without feeling like you're going to pass out, uh... to be able to take a sensible shower. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable the difference that you feel. And then, so the max that I went to, I think, was 116%, which was basically over the predicted, right? The predict, like what the what the machine the, predicts the that average, you to be. Yeah. yeah. Um. So it was just it's it's such a stark contrast. Now, sadly, I had a, a, a really bad bout of rejection in the fall of 2018, so I've actually lost a lot of my lung function again. 
um not near as much as what I was before but like I I've been reminded of what it's like to be a little bit limited because I'm getting back into exercising and I'm like oh god I can't do you know what I could when I first had my transplant so it's it's very interesting to me at the different levels of your lung function the things that you're able and not able to do I wanted to ask you if I could if I could interject but like what um so you were able to fight off the rejection and it's been, you've been fine now. Like you have no rejection. Maybe you could also talk about what rejection is. I don't know if you want to get into that. Yeah. But. So, um, this is going to be really hard for me to talk about because it's something that I'm, I have a lot of shame about um, and I'm, I'm still dealing with mentally, but I, after my transplant, I went through a very severe depression. Um, I dealt with severe survivor's guilt. I had a lot going on in my personal life and, um, I stopped taking my anti-rejection medications. Yeah. So I basically put myself into rejection. Okay. Um, so I was really lucky in that I got to the hospital. Um, I was in the ICU for two weeks. And basically when they restarted my anti-rejection medication, it basically just saved my, saved my lungs. So I don't really like to use my case as like a rejection case. Yeah. Um, because, because it doesn't really qualify as what like most people struggle with rejection. Um, and like I said, I deal with a lot of shame uh, from it. I talked about it on my social media a little bit and I got so much hate from different people with CF and transplant and it really like took its toll on me and I've been, I've been continually dealing with it. I've gotten to a place now where I've forgiven myself for, for doing that. Um, and I know in my heart that I'll never do it again because I've, I've done the proper steps to make sure that that won't happen again. I'm not even going to get into that because that's a whole different topic. But, but for most people, rejection is something they can't help. Rejection is when um, your body, the, the, the cells in your body can uh, develop a resistance to your new lungs and they start to attack the, the organs. So, I mean, like you, you know what a kidney rejection is like. So it's, it's essentially the same thing in that, your body just says, uh -uh, these don't belong here. We're going to attack them. And unless you do the proper things, like there's, there's many options that they can do for a rejection. Um, and then there's different types of rejection. There's acute rejection and there's chronic rejection. So the rejection that I had was like an acute flare up in that I wasn't taking my medication properly and it caused that to happen. And then when I put the medication back in my body, it, it saved them. So, so Jamie, what's your lung function now? My lung function is in the 60s. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and I only, the only time I feel limited um, is when I'm exercising. And I actually, I'm starting to believe, especially now that we have really terrible weather here in Newfoundland. So it's only now that the weather's starting to get nice. And I'm starting to notice that it's not my lungs that's causing me to, oh. to hold back. It's, uh, I'm just out of shape. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's that that happens yeah I'm, I'm, before you got on we're talking about like trying to stay in shape during quarantine and like yeah. staying active so that's totally yeah. valid yeah i'm just really deconditioned because my physiotherapist again she's she's such a great motivator she's like you know you can do it you just gotta do it yes you know and like i just found like the other night i went for a bike ride and i had to walk my bike 80 percent of the time and you know what i got home because i was feeling defeated i was gonna call my mom to get her to come pick me up and I got back and I was like, you know what? I just did it. You did. That's right. I did it. So 
and I was so proud of myself. Like, even though I had to walk the bike 80% and I was like, what are people thinking? I, I just did it. But through that, I'm just learning that it's not, I don't think it's my lungs that's holding me back because when I'm out of breath, I recover so quickly, yeah. but it's my, mm -hmm. my body is just so out of shape. Yeah. I think, you know, to your point, I, you know, the motivation to, to really do what we can for ourselves to improve our health or, you know, in all aspects of life, I think that's what keeps us going, you know, and that's what really allows us to, to live through all of this. You know, I think mental health can be such a, you know, such a difficult obstacle to our physical well-being. You know, I think that it, they definitely go hand in hand. And, um, and further you know, to your point, point I also felt that um, people with CF, I mean, we struggle with this disease our entire lives. We just want to be normal. So sometimes, you know, we don't want to do the physio. We don't want to have to put in the extra work that it takes for us to just be able to live because we see everybody else who are just like, get up in the morning and go and they can do whatever they want. And we, and yeah. we envy that. But I certainly relate to the mental health aspect. And if anybody's listening to this now and you're in the process of either entering transplant or considering transplant, my biggest advice that I would give anybody going into transplant is focus on your mental health. Mm -hmm. because the doctors and the teams are so there to take care of all the physical stuff, but you've got to get your head in check and be prepared for what you're about to enter. Because I wish somebody had to have not warned me, but had kind of took me aside and said like, this is going to take a lot out of you. And for me, I had a lot of uh, childhood traumas and different things that like attributed to my, to my demise. But the mental aspect, like Ella, I totally agree with you. It's such an important part. And I also have learned that when you're not there mentally, the physical follows. So wherever you are mentally, that's where you're physically going to be. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. You know, like if you're, if you're not all in mentally, then you're not going to be all in physically. Yep. And once those two things for me got in sync, that's when I started like the past, I can't believe I'm saying this, but like the past year has been the best year of my entire life with my health. Yeah. And it's because I've put in the work to get the mental and the physical on the same, the same part, you know? That's super true. Well, and the other thing, cause you were saying like people gave you a lot of hate and everything that people don't understand is that the medications you are put on for your transplant mess with your head. Yeah. That's well, I've heard. <laughs> Especially if you're on steroids, like some, like for kidney that you can do some non-steroid protocols, but even that, like, even the non-steroids, those ones mess with it. They mess, like people have, I mean, rage. People have like all, like every emotion under the sun. And like, and even now I'm 13 years out transplant. And even when we adjust my dosage still a little bit, even not like my, just my regular transplant meds, like your body changes, you feel a yeah. difference, things change. Yeah. These are the things that people don't talk about. And if you're not prepared going in, like you're saying, <clears throat> And people don't help you with like, here's what's going to happen. Because so many people in the kidney world, and I would assume it's similar for you guys, assume I'm going to get a transplant. Life's going to be great. And I can go about my life. And it's like, no, no, no. You're going to go through every hormonal possible feeling known to man 20 times a day. You're going to have every emotion, everything. And you're going to deal with side effects. And you're going to deal with all these other things. Like there is that aspect. And we're all going to battle that. So I'll just add an extra element to that, though, with NICA, is that when you have a lung transplant, 
not only are you dealing with those, um, you know, reactions from medications, when you have such little oxygen going through your body, that affects your mental health. That alone. I believe it. Your brain function is affected. I didn't yeah. know this until after my transplant because, listen, I'll be the first to admit it. I turned into the biggest asshole going through my transplant. Like I, I look back on it now and I'm like, you know what? It's a wonder that I had my family and friends stick mm. by me because between the pain medication, the low oxygen, all the other stuff that I was being given, plus, like I said, my traumatic childhood that I had, mm-hmm. it's a wonder that people didn't be like, you know what? Just put a pillow over him and let him oh go. <laughs> no, like seriously, I, I, I have a lot of regret about how mm. I treated people. But again, I've also learned through therapy and counseling that a lot of it was out of my control. A lot mm-hmm. of it was things that, you know, just the circumstances of what I went through. Yeah. You know, and going through transplant is not easy. No one should be naive to think that it's like a walk in the park. Nope. Right. It's not. <laughs> No, that's yeah. And that's so true. And that's the thing. And I think people don't realize that. And there's people who just go in blindly just being like, I just I'll do whatever I just want to feel better. Like, because at least in the kidney world, too, because people have dialysis, if they're doing relatively okay on dialysis, they're in for actually a bigger shock when they get transplant because they hear so many success stories. They assume they're going to wake up from transplant. Life's going to be perfect. It's not. Like there's still stuff you have to go through. You deal with medication changes. You deal with like all these things happening. And I've heard so many people be like, I actually feel worse the first like six months after transplant than I did on dialysis. It's like your body's adjusting. You have to, I mean, I thought I'd go back to work in three months and it took me six to nine because I was throwing up almost every day from my medication. Yeah. And I'm like, well, this yeah. is fun. Cool. Yeah. Good to know. Like, well, you'll be back at work at three months. I'm like, nope, I'm throwing my medication up every day. That's not happening. And then, I mean, you you get in your head then and you're like, what the hell did I put myself through yeah. this for if this is going to be my new life? Yeah. And when I was, yeah, when I was going through the, the process last summer and I was at Duke and we basically had to do two hours of cardiopulmonary rehab every day and then also take classes. So it was kind of, it was like a one month program leading up to it that everybody that was going through lung transplant was required to do. Um, And so, you know, I've heard like, there was obviously a lot of older people because as we talked about at the beginning, you know, a lot of people that get lung transplants are elderly people having, you know, COPD and, and pulmonary fibrosis and things like that. So, and they were not, you know, they were they were not prepared for what was going to happen, even though these classes were, you know, telling them they were like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to get through this. Like, I'm going to get new, you know, oh my, my old lung, you know, feel like my old self again. And, you know, I think it's it, it if you're not prepared and you don't know, you know, really what it entails. And I think those of us with CF are much more prepared to take on post transplant life than a lot of people with other conditions, because we have, you know, done the medications all our lives. We have had to do these rigorous treatments and at certain times in the day. And, you know, to an extent, yes, it's going to, it is trading like one disease for another, but, you know, hopefully it will be a lesson, you know, less, less, less maintenance required um, and feeling better. So I think that we are a population that is definitely equipped in general to take on post-transplant life. And I think, you know, the statistics have shown that I think we do relatively well. One, because we're a younger population versus, you know, most of the the other people that are getting lungs. Um, And because of this 
this knowledge on how to take care of ourselves, how to, you know, advocate for ourselves in health situations. Um, so I think that's all, those are all factors. That makes a big difference. Well, and I also like you touched on something that I often think about because I've had kidney problems since I was a kid, but it didn't affect my childhood. It really didn't come in until I was like 1920, went on dialysis. My transplant was at 21 and everybody at the dialysis center was like 70 and over. Right. I was like, and my transplant center, I was like one of two people who was like 20. Everybody else was way older. But I have clients and there's been people throughout my life that get different diagnoses that are serious later in life, like 60 plus stuff like that. And they are so intensely devastated and like distraught for what I feel is a longer period of time than people who are younger and used to being sick here and there. And so I think that's true because, and like what I tell my clients as I've had bumps in the road, cause again, transplant isn't a cure, it's a treatment, things are gonna happen. And people are always like, how do you handle this so well? I'm like, here's the thing. Once something's happened once, the second, third, fourth, fifth time is a little bit less of a blow. You're kind of like, eh, I kind of expect some of this, like whatever. It's that first blow that is the most devastating. And if you've gone the majority of your life, 50 plus years, feeling invincible, that's even more of a blow than you've had. Like, cause as a kid, I had asthma, I've been on nebulizers. I've, you know, I was always at the, like, not like always, but like every year at the hospital for one reason or another, the bad flu, whatever. And so I was familiar enough that it's like when it finally came, it was a blow, but it wouldn't be the same as some, to me anyway, as to someone who was like 60, who's been invincible. And then all of a sudden it's a whole new world. I think those are two totally different things. I, I, ju I just couldn't agree with what you're saying more to be honest. Yeah. And so for you guys, like, because you've talked about the different lung function levels and how you feel and what you're able to do. So obviously, like when you have a certain amount, you're not on oxygen, you're able to do more, you know, you have this issue. But then when you are on oxygen and things change, you can't hide it. Family, friends, what happens when that change happens? Because I have to imagine it's kind of like you become a different person a little bit, right? Because your whole life has to change. How did people around you guys respond to that? Um, you know, I, people around, I think people respond to you the way that you, the vibe that you give off. You know, I think if you feel comfortable with yourself, you know, other people will feel comfortable with you as well. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you know, you're going to have people that look at you and ask questions. You know, I've had that happen. You know, I, Luckily, I've been fortunate that, you know, I haven't, if I don't wear oxygen, you know, people out in public don't know that I have CF. Right. So it's, I still am able to hide it, you know, in a lot of, a lot of situations. But in those few times where, you know, I have needed to be in public with oxygen at periods of time when I've been sicker, you know, I think that it's, it's just shaped me to be more honest and forthcoming about my situation and my disease. And, you know, I, over time, I've become more comfortable with it. Um, and I don't really experience intense dread. I mean, I have like one, one moment where I do recall, um, you know, definitely feeling like I wanted to melt into the ground. Um, but, you know, it's just I've come to accept that it's a part of my life. And it's at this point, it is going to be even more so in my future. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we accept ourselves and allow us to be, you know, it allows us to be more, more open and honest. Uh, and really, I just think it improves our relationships with other people. Um, 
so that that one situation I guess that I can think of is one of them. Well, it was where I was, it was in 2017, I think I was in the hospital for, I was at Duke in the hospital. I had a lung collapse at the time. Um, and I was needing supplemental oxygen all the time. And, but I wanted to get outside from the hospital room, go for a walk. And it was on Duke University is on the hospital was on the Duke campus of the school. And so, you know, I'm in my twenties and there were, there were, it, the campus was quiet until the, you know, the, the classes let out. And then I'm there with, with my mom walking with an oxygen cannula through campus. And I'm like, oh my God, I, can't, I, I do not want to be here right now. How did this happen? Why did I walk this direction? Right. Um, and even though none of those people knew me, um, you know, it's still hard to have it be visible when you feel so uh, vulnerable or weak. You know, I think like, I've had a number, I've done a number of like speaking engagements where, I, you know, I talk about CF, I talk about my health, I talk in detail about how vulnerable I have been in the past, you know, with, with needing treatments and all this stuff. But in those times, I feel very empowered for people to know about my disease um, and to know and to feel like I'm an expert in it. Um, but it's when I am looking feeble or, you know, not showing how I'm able to conquer CF because I'm not, it's conquering me. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to accept those. But like I said, it's, it's really a mindset. I think if you accept who you are, um, other people will as well. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Go ahead, Jimmy. For me, like I was extremely lucky because I had uh, a mother who just taught me to never be ashamed from a very young age of having cystic fibrosis. So I would tell everybody, I would tell strangers, I would, if anybody looked at me funny, I'd be like, listen, what do you want to know? Why can I, how can I educate? You know, I, I always looked at things as a, as an educational opportunity. And even today, like I don't hide my CF, I don't hide my transplant. It's something that I'm actually intensely proud of. Because I feel like cystic fibrosis and transplant has shaped the the person who I'm proud to be today. So I've never hit it. I think, though, that it was really hard for those who love me most and my friends to see me going from somebody who loved life and lived life so loudly and energetically to being so defeated by yeah. having poor lungs. I actually think that it may have been harder on them than it was on me because I was feeling it gradually whereas I think some of them felt like it was almost an overnight thing where you know I just became so incapable of doing just the simplest of tasks so I have to say like I think it was hard and stressful for a lot of people who were in my circle of care to see me go from and and two I I sadly I, I allowed myself to feel defeated. I allowed myself to be in the mindset of, well, CF is winning. And I, I think that was a really dangerous thing. I didn't mean for it to happen, but I mean, when you're feeling so low, it's yeah. very hard for it not to because it's CF is a really difficult disease. It affects every aspect of your life, every aspect of your body. So it just, for me, it just changed. So I think it was, a, it was hard for those around me to really see me go through that. Yeah, that makes, I get that a lot. That makes a lot of sense. And you've both kind of touched on something 
that is something like I've struggled with and dealt with is this idea of what you're showing to the world. Like you feel like, Ellie, you were saying like, you feel empowered and on top of the world when you're the expert and showing this example, but then you feel defeated when it looks like it's beating you a little bit. And I think that's so interesting because like I've, I felt that and I've seen that because I'm always about like, look at me, I can do whatever, forget this disease, blah, blah, blah. But I always wonder like, as I'm getting older, because when you're younger, you're just like, whatever. But as I'm getting older, I'm like, but wait, that's totally part of it. Like, aren't we empowered more? Or shouldn't we be empowered more in those moments too, where it's like, I'm battling the thing that's like fighting me. Like I am fighting this. This is my strongest point. Not when I'm just putting on the brave face for everybody else, but when I'm in the toughest part of this, that really should be our most empowering because other people aren't going through this shit. They don't have to fight this. It's easy to put on a smile when like life is all freaking roses. But when you're fighting something that's battling you, like that's when you're the most empowered, even though I know in the moment it doesn't feel like that. But that's when you're their strongest. Absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I think, like you said, in the moment, you know, at least in the moment, no, I don't feel like I'm the strongest. You know, I'm just trying to get through one day at a time um, and trying to get to the to the next to the other side of this. Um, but yeah, definitely looking back, I think that we can all feel proud and uh, empowered by what we have, you know, overcome in our lives, all the different uh, health and, and hurdles that we have, you know, now become stronger from. So for me, my motivation for when I started speaking out about um, my rejection and how it was it was really self-inflicted, my motivation and my intention through it from the very beginning was to help people realize that you need to prepare yourself mentally for going through transplant. I mean, that was my first and foremost motivation. I had so much childhood trauma that I didn't have resolved that I carried with me through transplant. I was so angry. I didn't have proper avenues that I vented to. I didn't have proper support systems set in place that I should have. So my motivation from, from the very beginning and opening up and talking about that was to help people going into transplant. And when I started getting so much hate and like um, anger from people amongst the community that I so feel like I belong, and that is the CF community, it really shook me to my core because I'm like, I would never ever um, look down on somebody for their choices, especially when those choices were made out of um, not thinking clearly or things that have happened to them. So it really took me a long time to, um, to be able to like open up to my, even my CF friends again, because I felt so judged and criticized by, and then when I went through counseling and therapy, I re she made me realize that most of those people who were giving me such a hard time were people who haven't been through transplant yet. They have no idea. They have no idea what what's entailed in going through transplant. They have no idea. Mm -hmm. And you know, that really, it really helped me appreciate that, you know, we can all sit behind our computers and our, our, our laptops and whatever and judge people and and make you know judgment calls on, on other people's journeys. But until you've walked in their shoes and you know the history and the full story, we really should be kinder towards mm -hmm. others and really respect other people's journey for what it is. 
And, you know, like I've grown so much in the past year since that whole episode. And I really feel like I'm finally in my life in a really good place. And, you know, it's it's just taken a lot for me to to have that sense of pride, like Nike that you're talking about in that looking back on that now, I can say, you know what? It sucked that I went through it. But the fact is, I, I got through it. Mm-hmm. I'm here. I'm still here and I'm still kicking ass. Yep. You know, and I'm I'm using my struggles and my journey to inspire other people and, you know, lift people up. I mentor as many people as I can who are either go, starting the transplant process or going through the transplant process. And I'm doing what I can to pay it forward. No, that's amazing. And I think here's the thing, too. Like, when you're talking about people giving you all this hate, I think the thing is, and you had talked about earlier about having shame about what you, you know, did in your choices. But you're not the only one that's done that. There's lots of people that have done that. Actually, I was just in a forum today where a girl was talking about her kidney function levels from her transplant are declining. And she goes, it's my own fault. I smoke. I drink. I don't take my pills. And da, da, da. And I'm like, all right, well, you have a choice. You still have time to recover this. And at least she was like open enough to say that. But that happens actually a lot. And yeah. so you being able to have the strength and the vulnerability to come out and talk about it forewarns other people so other people can be more prepared so hopefully it prevents more so there's a lot of strength and empowerment in that too because other people just won't say it they'll just hate it and they'll make exactly yeah Yeah. and and so right and i've I've actually been told that by a lot of people you know that it because i felt like oh this has never happened before i'm the first one to ever do this and then when I got on the Facebook groups and learned, you know, talking to different people and I found out that, listen, it's happened a lot more. People just don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas my, like I said, my motivation is to like inform people like this is going to be hard. This is going to be tough. Yeah. Whatever it is you feel you have to do to get yourself in the best shape, both physically and mentally. Because for me, like it just like, I don't know, Ella, if you can speak to this, because I mean, you're in the United States, but. During the transplant assessment process, did you find there was much evaluation of where you were mentally? I mean, actually, no, not really. They did have like a, um, I guess, a mental health meeting with a psychologist. So the psychologist is a component of the transplant team. I don't know how it is, um, you know, where you are, yeah. but at least a Duke it is. And, but, you know, I, I guess I have, to be honest, you know, I have, handled it pretty well overall. You know, I think that I have an amazing support system. You know, my parents, friends have all been very supportive throughout my entire life. And so I've never had too severe, you know, bouts of, you know, feeling down or hopelessness or anything like that. So, you know, I think that maybe they weren't, you know, in, in, and as far as how I was acting, you know, they're not, they were really not paying attention to me and like my health, you know, my, my mental health aspect as much as maybe some others. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think that to be able to get through, you know, something like transplant, you got to have that mental, that mental strength, um, because it definitely defines your, your outcomes. I mean, there's no question. Well, it's not just that, like, so for on the kidney side, and I assume it's pretty similar. There's a social worker who does an evaluation, um, at all the hospitals. Right. And like, they will deny you or they'll make you like, so I was like 20 and I I just like left a doctor who was awful. And because I was young and I left a doctor who I thought was awful to find a better doctor, they thought I would be non-compliant. So they denied me for a transplant. And because 
somebody who was my age just got a kidney, then went out and partied a bunch and drank and blah, blah, blah. Her kidney transplant failed and it affects their numbers. And so they're like, nope, we're going to be extra cautious with young people, whatever, right? So they made me see a psychologist for three months. They made me do all that stuff. And that happens. Like I know a lot of people online who have been denied and have been, some have been offered that option. Like you have to see a therapist for three months. They have to sign off. They have to whatever. And then some nothing, you know, like there's nothing in the beginning, whether there really is something or isn't, but then after from the medications and everything else, because once you've had a transplant, the social worker doesn't give a crap about you. It's just a way you get approved. Post-transplant, it's more about let's keep this kidney alive and then everything else. So to your point, like post-transplant, it's, there is no real aspect of what are we doing for the mental health of the patients? There is a pre-transplant to make sure you can mentally take it for the most part, but post-transplant, there is nothing. So that's really, yeah, that's really true. That's a really interesting point too. So then that makes me, lead into this next part with you guys, because you've both had similar and different lives, you know, similar diagnosis, um, but different paths. What have you learned about yourselves in this process? You go first, Ella. <laughs> All right. Um, I mean, I've learned about my physical health, obviously, through my entire life of dealing with CF. You know, I've really become very in tune with how I'm doing. Um, and, but outside of that, I think I've, I've learned to really just accept myself for who I am. And I, th I think I talked, you know, I talked about this before, but, um, you know, being just trying to be positive, learning that staying in the moment, just like living life one day at a time, um, is really the the best that kind of at least I have found um, to be my method of coping of you know building resilience of being you know enjoying each day for what it is mm -hmm. um, because you know we, we don't know what we're grant what, how many more we're granted and what tomorrow might bring um, and so I think it's really shaped me you know I say CF is like my greatest blessing but my greatest curse as well um because you know it's obviously brought a lot of a lot of health challenges but it's also allowed me to have this perspective um to really make the most of of the now and i know it sounds cliche but i, I think it's really true and you know embracing what we have and finding finding joy in that even though we are Limit, even though you know my life is limited, but making the most of what I can. So I think I've learned a lot of life lessons that I think early on that I think you know a lot of people take much longer, a lifetime to uh, figure out. Yep, I can totally feel that. Yeah. So my thoughts like are very much the same as Ella's. The only thing that I'll add is that I've learned that I'm a hell of a lot stronger than I ever imagined that I could be, ever will be, you know, like life continues to give me just hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. And I just keep overcoming them. And it's easy to get caught up in the moment when things aren't going, you know, as we plan and, you know, get down on ourselves. But I just find that I just take those moments to reflect on everything that I've been through 
and everything that I've conquered in my life, um, you know, in the short 33 years that I've been alive, I'm a childhood rape victim. I'm a childhood uh, survivor of being raised in an alcoholic home. I've survived leaving a religious cult. I've survived, you know, attempting suicide because of my sexuality. I've survived a double lung transplant. So like, I've just survived and survived and survived. And it's just taught me that I'm so resilient and that I can get through anything. And further to, again, echo what Ella said, it's just taught me so much about life that people wait until they get in their 70s and 80s to find out. You know, like the realizations that I have, even going through this COVID stuff, like I just find, I don't know about you, Ella, but I just find I'm dealing with this so much better than so many people around me because CF patients are so used to being isolated. They're so used to not being able to do what they want to do. Um, you know, like I see people like on Instagram and my Facebook having like mental breakdowns and I'm like, girl, you need to calm down. <laughs> this is just a walk in the park for us. you know. What I mean? <laughs> so it's just really taught me that like, you know, the value and, and I totally agree with Ella. I think it must be a, a universal thing that CF patients feel and that CF is a blessing and a curse because if I could choose and this is going to sound really, really bad. But if I could choose whether to live a life with CF or not CF, I would totally choose to live a life with cystic fibrosis huh. because it's yeah. taught me so much about just what's truly important in life. Okay. And I've gained the most respectable relationships with people. And, you know, like I, I just I treasure like the simple things like, again, it sounds so cliche, but even just like sometimes when my nephew's around, I'll, I'll just stare at him and I just feel so grateful that I'm alive just to see him grow. You know, it's just, it's, it, it's just, it's amazing what, what CF has taught me. I love that. Yeah. I feel the same way about my kidney disease. My mom always thinks I'm like lying or something. I'm like, no, I know who I am. I would have been an awful person without my kidney disease. <laughs> so bad. Like I'm not a nice person. Like I would not have been like, I'm sorry. I know who I am. Like it is like, I travel the world. I do things that I wouldn't have done. Like Ella was saying, like, like this, all these cliches. And it's so funny. Cause I would have been like, if I would eat, go back in time and hear myself now. I'm like, who are you? Because it is so true, like living in the moment. Because when I had my transplant, I promised myself one thing and it was, I'll plan for the future as long as it doesn't get in the way of living for today. Because I used to be so hung up in the future and everything else. And I'd never enjoy myself, never do the things in the moment that make you happy. And that's what these diseases I feel do if you're willing to pay attention and deal with your emotion is make you go, okay, what really matters? What mm -hmm. am I going to put my energy towards? What's in this moment? My family, the things I love, Jamie, you just went to your cabin and you were outdoors recently. Like those things that we love in the day to day, I love traveling. So I leave the country a couple of times a year. I would have never done that before. I would have been too afraid that like, it's going to hold me back somehow. Like those are the things. And it's so awesome to see you guys doing that. And then especially right now with everything going on, like Jamie started talking about it. And I think it's true, like with COVID-19, everyone's freaking out. I'm like, I'm a post-transplant patient. I've been living this life for 13 years. I've been wiping things down. I've been like, welcome to my world. Here we go. Yep. Is there anything else yep. about COVID-19 that you feel has impacted you guys like one way or the other? Um, You know, I think like, like, I'm both like what you guys said, you know, I'm not overly fearful. I'm 
you know, we've been, we've been, we know how to wash our hands. We've been wearing, I mean, at least with CF, you know, we've been wearing masks in the clinics all the time. Now everybody's wearing masks. So it's just less of a deal anyway. Um, you know, I've still been doing the same. I work primarily from home anyway. So I've still been working, you know, it, it has, obviously it's affected all of us, you know, to an extent, um, you know, obviously I haven't been able to see friends as much or, you know, just to, to do my normal life, but very, you know, I'm very fortunate to still have, you know, my resources and income. Um, and I've just really not, you know, felt much fear. Um, you know, I've haven't gotten sucked into the media blasts, um, you know, all this. I'm, you know, I think that, folk, like I said, focusing on that, like one day at a time approach mantra, you know, it just keep, what can I do today to work towards my goals, you know, keep up my exercise routines, um, you know, I've been even more disciplined now in quarantine. So, you know, it's, it's not been bad. And I, I think that I've, you know, I, I don't want to, I think it's important to have a balance between taking precaution, but also living your life in the way that you want to be fulfilled. And so I think that this means that, yes, I think that you know, when all, when things do open up again here in Virginia, we're in like phase one, but, um, you know, when things do open up again, you know, with taking precautions within reason, but, you know, doing the things that you want to do. Um, I think we've, we've all been, we've talked about it. We've all been through many difficult health challenges and, you know, I've had pneumonias, collapsed lungs. I'm not saying I'm invincible by any means, but, you know, let's do what we can. Let's also enjoy our lives. Don't live in fear. Just take what tomorrow brings. And, you know, I think the rest of it is, is kind of left up to a man upstairs. So that's just, that's just my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And like, for me, like, I just, like I said, looking back on everything that I've survived in my life, I'm not going to let something like COVID-19 just suck the joy and, you know, um, whatever out of my life and I'm not going to spend my days sitting at home watching TV and living my life in fear being sucked in by the because I do believe strongly that there's a degree of fear mongering that's happening and you know people are you know do tend to go to extremes a little bit with the things I mean there's I don't know how many I think there's like seven billion people in the world and there's only five million cases worldwide so mm -hmm. I mean I just feel like Again, like Ella said, cystic fibrosis has prepped us for this. Yeah. You know, like kidney transplant has prepped you for this, Micah. Mm -hmm. It's it's it this is not a this is nothing new for either of us going through a pandemic. You know, we do all the precautions that you know everybody else is now obligated to do. We've been doing them our whole freaking lives to stay mm -hmm. safe and healthy. So it's really like it, it just feels like another day to me. Uh -huh. The the hardest part for me again, because I have such a, a mental health struggle is the not being able to go see friends not being able to be around people because I am a people person and mm -hmm. um, I'm an interior designer so my work has totally shut down I can't go and decorate someone's houses obviously so like I've been out of work for 10 weeks so those things are what's affecting me more than the actual virus and the the you know the the fear culture that's happening it right. is affecting me I was just gonna say that too because I think it's like all those things that we're saying is so true. It's like, we've kind of been prepped for this in our own ways with our illnesses, but it is that social aspect, the interconnectedness that is a little bit harder 
just because being a chronic illness patient, you already have that strain a little bit. Like that's something you really try to find. And if you have a community, you try to keep your community, your interpersonal communications. Like I'm a trainer, so I have clients I see in person that I haven't been seeing. And I love, that's my interaction, my day-to-day. I love my clients. That's yep. what my day-to-day is. Um, those are the tough aspects. I think might be even tougher for people yeah. who have a chronic illness, whereas we might have it a little bit easier with the restrictions because we're like, yeah, okay, restrictions are nothing new. That's like, right. a, that's a normal day in our lives. And you guys started touching on it um, and we'll kind of close with this, but like, so we've talked about COVID-19 and the illnesses and mental health and what you go through and all the possible outcomes of transplant or if you don't, what do you do in your life to prevent from living in fear and instead like embracing your life? Who's going to go? <laughs> All right. I guess I'll go. Okay. So I, I've also said this, but I think, you know, living in the moment and maintaining, trying to maintain a general positive outlook, you know, being, being optimistic about our, our circumstances, even, you know, even though we're in a difficult situation now, just trying to think about it being short term that, you know, this too shall pass, whatever we're in, you know, we can get through. And there's no need to worry also about what may be lying ahead. You know, I think when that comes, we will address it. And, you know, we can, we can, we'll, we'll do what we can then. And so I, I thought, I mean, I have a good example of this. I was in 2017, I was, I had a lung collapse. Also is that same, one of those hospitalizations, I had three that spring and for all three, I had to be in the hospital required pleurodesis, which is like gluing the lungs to the lung lining, um, the pleural space. And so anyway, it was, I didn't know, I mean, after the first one, I thought it was the glue would hold my lungs up, but then it happened again two months later. And then again, two months after that. And I, you know, I had planned a trip that summer. My, my parents are Hungarian and they, they have a house there in Hungary and I was going to be going to visit them and then also do like a trip to Croatia. So it was all planned and I was super excited. Um, and I put it off. It was earlier in the year and I, I put it off to go later in the summer. And that last lung collapse was in like June. And so I wasn't, you know, I was scared that what if it happened again when I was abroad or on the airplane? Um, it was very, uh, you know, it was very scary and I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know if I should live in, you know, be fearful that it could happen again and not do something that I really, really wanted to do um, or whether I should take the risk and just take it a day at a time. And if I'm there and a lung collapse happens, well, they have hospitals there too. Um, and I would figure it out one way or another. Yep. It, something would happen. So, you know, I, I ended up deciding to go. And this I went about like two months, rough, one to two months after that third lung collapse. And I ended up being fine. Luckily, my lungs have still held up since that. So knock on wood. Um, but I was, I was definitely scared. You know, I'm not saying that we never live in fear, right? Because certainly there are times in our lives where we do very much experience fear, but it's being able to over, to being able to control that, to being able to overcome it and to say, you know what, I'm going to do what I can in my power and I'm going to let tomorrow bring what it brings 
and I'm going to figure it out. Um, and I think that's the way I've been able to accomplish as much as I have and just to, to live as vibrant, I guess, of a life um, as I have liked. And like, and I feel fulfilled in that, you know, I, I wouldn't be happy with myself and I couldn't live a life that was sheltered and where I was scared of what if, you know, and that would not make me happy. I couldn't do that. And so that's why I, I have pushed past fear and I just do what I do. <laughs> yep. I totally get that. So for me, it was, um, you know, again, what I'm about to say goes back to the, the point of, being in check mentally and how that's going to affect you physically because I spent my entire existence living in fear. I lived in fear of my abusive father. I lived in fear of bullies in high school. I lived in fear of coming out as a gay man. I lived like, I just, I, 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 I'm sick of living in fear. So I've really tried over the past year and a half to um, live every day in gratitude, finding just, something out of each and every day to be grateful for. And I try and find at least three things and it could be the same things, you know, back to back days. It could be something completely different, but I just find having that gratitude list and trying to have an attitude of gratitude uh, really helps propel me towards embracing life rather than being in fear. And I'll just say that, you know, living in fear got me nowhere before it, it robbed me of the joy in life. It robbed me of being happy um, you know, we can spend our days, uh, day in and day out with what ifs and well, what about if this happens? What about if that happens? And, you know, fair enough, but where is that going to get you? And, and what is that going to allow you to accomplish in life? So instead I choose to, you know, ha have goals, have plans. And like Ella said, like have, have a healthy fear of things. Like, obviously I'm not going to go out and go to like some big slumber party right now and, and, you know, not do things to keep me safe. That would be stupid. That, that's <laughs> stupidity, you know, but I'm, I'm also not going to not go for a walk because, oh my God, somebody I meet outside may have COVID, you know, as long as I'm doing things that are protecting myself. And for me too, like I know, like uh, we've talked about it, the, the physical part of it really helps me mentally. So staying okay. physical, staying active is really helping my mental health. So I'm not going to not go outside and let fear prevent me from doing so when that's only going to make me suffer even more so mentally. Yep. So right. I think like, I think like Alice said, it's all about balance. It's all about, you know, you know, taking that healthy fear and putting it in, in its perspective. But at the end of the day, for me, it's having that gratitude and, you know, learning to live life, embracing it. I love running. that attitude of gratitude. I'm going to yeah. remember that. I love that. I, I read it in a book shortly after my rejection. I wish I could remember what book it was in, but um, it was just, it, it was in a sentence. I don't even think the author meant to like, but having an attitude of gratitude, it's like the biggest thing that I. I love it. Because it rhymes. It, it does. <laughs> and I like how you said like three things. Like I did a yoga teacher training a year or two years ago. I don't even know anymore. And one thing, one of the instructors had mentioned like in their household, what they'll do is if someone's getting super grumpy or like having an issue, they're like, name three things you're grateful for. Like it's a really quick way to interrupt because if you guys are right, it's up here. Like even the fear, the fear isn't like it's legitimate because your emotions are legitimate but you're creating this 
response in your head, and then it creates a physiological response in your body. So that means if you're creating it, you can stop it. So your idea of gratitude and those three things and those moments of fear are such a wonderful idea. Like I need to actually remember that too. Like <laughs> we're all going to have it, right? You're going to yeah. have little things creep up into your head. It's unrealistic yeah. to be like, I'm never going to be fear. No, that's bullshit. Yeah. Like we're going to have some fear. Things are going to come up, but it's what's going to, what's going to overcome is yeah, just, gratitude or that fear. I just find that tool for me. It just brings me back. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have this thing that I say, it brings me back to Jesus, you know, because it like, it hones me. It, it helps me like this morning. I'm not going to lie. I was feeling really overwhelmed. I've been 10 weeks without work. I don't qualify for any of the, the federal benefits that they offer here. Right. I'm getting really overwhelmed financially. And then, so I did that gratitude thing and I was like, okay, so I'm living with my mom. I have a roof over my head and I have food in the fridge. Mm. And it, inst- I swear to God, it instantly, I was like, oh my God, like, I'm okay. Yep. There's people, there's people who are homeless. Yep. Do you, do you really have room to complain right now? No. So shut up and move on. <laughs> it is, it's a, it like this. Yep. It's a grounding exercise, right? It's like, a grounding exercise. That's exactly what it is yeah. for me. It's yeah. Exactly what it is for I me. like that. And I think that, and cause yeah, physical fitness and we've all been talking about it, but like, it's such a thing. Like if I don't get to move my body, I am not in a great place, like mentally, like it messes with me more than like a day or two, like it changes things. So I, cause I think physical fitness also grounds you. And I think that combined with this attitude of gratitude is such a great way to, to go about I've it. I've lost audio again because somebody <laughs> tried to call in. Oh no. So I, are we cluing up now? You can just not. Yep. So, all right. So we lost Jamie for a second, but I don't know if he can hear me at all. But oh, wait, maybe he can hear me. Let's see. Oh, he's going to log out and come back in. But oh, that was so oh, that was so amazing to hear both of your stories. I know Jamie's not in the picture right now, but he'll be able to see this little part. And we are. That was the very end. Oh, he's coming back right now. Um, but this was such a great time. Jamie, can you hear us? Yay. I can. Sorry. <laughs> Fine. I was just saying, it's been so great to have you both. And before we finish, Jamie, there's actually a comment for you from Samuel telling you, give, just giving some feedback and some love and support saying you don't have to be ashamed of what happened. As you mentioned, we each have different paths with cystic fibrosis and it probably happens more often than we hear about it. Big kudo to you. You have the courage to be honest about what happened, overcome it and take it to the outside world to educate people about it. Oh, that's wonderful. There's a lot of that. And that just got me too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of, you know, we don't realize, but there are so many people that support us and that cheerlead us along the way. You know, I don't, I couldn't be where I am without everybody, you know, without the positivity that I've been blessed with. And so I think we just have to remember that, you know, yeah, there's going to be people that disagree with us and or don't like how we do things, but ultimately they, they don't matter to our lives. Um, and we, um, we're strong and we know we are and keep doing and what, I, I what would we like can. to take this opportunity to thank you for doing this because um, I, I just feel a very strong sense of connection and community with people. It doesn't matter if they're CF or, or anything, anything to do with transplant, anybody who has a chronic illness, so I just had to tell you, I think what you're doing is absolutely amazing. And I just hope that you continue to do it and stay inspired to do it because 
sadly, I do believe chronic people who suffer from illnesses, our voice isn't heard enough. We're not represented enough in the media. We're not represented enough on TV. And I just, I, I just give you such kudos, man, for doing something like this. And I, I have got to say, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to both of you guys today. Me too. Absolutely. Thank you both. This has been such a treat. I'm like, I get so much from talking to other people with chronic illness. And that's, that's why I wanted to do this is it's beyond just your individual illness. This is a community of people. We share a similar path in life. And I think that the more this community can come together, the more we can all heal together, grow and learn and be there for each other and live these. I really want everybody with a chronic illness to be able to live the best life possible and just go all out, not hold themselves back mentally and just know that there is life to be had and it's there for you. And so thank you both so much for doing this. I've learned so much from both of you. I love talking to you both. I feel like through this, we make connections and we're going to be able to continue these conversations and grow. And I'm so grateful. Thank you both so much for joining me. You're Thank so you welcome. for having I, us. It's teaching us all that we're more alike than we are different, I believe. That Absolutely. Is. Thank you both. And I will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.